Well, as you heard from Katie and from our peerless Advent candle lighters, Advent at Kenilworth Union Church this year is going to be six weeks long, starting today. Now, you should know that most of Christendom is horrified that we're celebrating the first Sunday of Advent on what's supposed to be the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time, but if anybody asks you about that, just tell them to mind their own business. I'm using a common Advent text for this morning from the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first verses of Mark's Gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make God's paths straight. And so John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to John and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in a coat of camel hair with a leather belt, and he ate locusts and honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not fit to untie his sandal. I've baptized you with water, but that one will baptize with Holy Spirit. Pray with me. In Jesus Christ, O God, you were despised and rejected by others. Watch over people who are different, who cannot copy well-worn customs or put on popular styles of life. If they are left out because narrow people fear different ways, help us to welcome them into the wider love of Jesus Christ, brother of us all. Amen. Well, as you know, the English word Advent comes from a Latin root, which means to come, because Jesus of Nazareth was the one who came down to Bethlehem so long ago and is coming again at the end of time. And so in order to understand this one for whom we wait during Advent, the Vancouver poet Diane Tucker has written what she calls 40 new O antiphons. Now an antiphon is simply a choral response. And if you want to understand something of the history of the antiphon, you can read about that in the worship notes at the end of the bulletin, but not during the sermon. So each of Diane Tucker's 40 new antiphons are seven line prayers addressed to Jesus because he was the one who came to Bethlehem. And each one of Miss Tucker's prayers begin with a clever descriptive address about Jesus that helps us to think about who he is and what he does in a new way. Oh, loud and lavish lover of the awkward and the shy. They begin with that address and then they conclude with a bold plea for Jesus to do something for us. Open our eyes to their silent beauties, we, pl- we pray. There's a bold imperative in these antiphons. Jesus, please listen. This is important. Open our eyes. Now this particular antiphon, this particular prayer to Jesus, gets him just right, doesn't it? Oh, loud and lavish lover of the awkward and the shy and the scared and the socially inept. Because Jesus was indeed loud and lavish in his love for the least, the last, the lost, the lame, the leper, and the loser. Yes? Now, maybe Jesus was so deft 
with the other and the different, with those who can't copy well-worn styles of life. Maybe he was so deft at that because he'd lived with awkwardness, social ineptitude, from his birth, from the very beginning. One of the harshest questions you can ask a person is, what's the matter with you? Were you raised in a barn? Well, if you ask Jesus that question, he would say, well, yeah, in fact, I was. And not only that, but his older cousin was John the Baptizer, maybe the most awkward denizen of first century Palestine. He wasn't shy, but he was socially inept. Mark tell us, tells us that John scorned the urbane civility of the cities to live out in the wretched barren desert between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, which was almost uninhabitable. Nobody lived there because it got two inches of rain a year. Nobody lived there but John. He was a loner. He was a misanthrope. Mark also tells us about John's diet and drag. Mark is fascinated by John's diet and drag. He tells us that John ate locusts dipped in honey. Now, locusts are crunchy and disgusting, but if you coat them with honey, it masks the grody taste, if not the crunch. And Mark tells us that John wore a coat of camel hair and wore a leather belt. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Brooks Brothers will sell you a full-length 100% genuine camel hair coat with flat pockets and horn buttons for $908.60. Now, I always thought that camel hair was just a fancy way of referring to expensive wool, but that's not the case. Camel hair is just that. It's from the hair of a camel, from the camel's belly, which Brooks Brothers tells me is especially luxurious and soft. I also discovered that Neiman Marcus will sell me a genuine Ferragamo leather belt for $450. My goodness, that John the Baptist was a snappy fashionista, wasn't he? <laughs> but of course, that's not what Mark wants to tell us. He's fascinated by John's garb, by what John wears, because a coat of camel hair and a leather belt are prophetic attire. So a coat of camel hair and a leather belt are to a prophet as a leather jacket bristling with silver buckles is to a biker, or a John Deere hat and bib overhauls is to a farmer, or a tweed jacket with elbow patches is to a college professor, or what a white coat and a stethoscope is to a doctor. That's what these things mean. If you said coat of camel hair and leather belt to a first century Jew, she would immediately conjure in her imagination the ancient old prophet Elijah. That's what this clothing means. A prophet. So a camel hair coat and a leather belt mean to a first century Jew the same thing that a stovepipe hat and a dark beard mean to the American consciousness. It can evoke only one historical hero and no other. And so maybe that's why Jesus is so smooth with the other and the different and those who can't copy well-worn customs. He was perpetually provoking the polite, the polished, politic people by always, I mean constantly, on every page of the gospel, constantly hanging out with ne'er-do-wells and having a beer at the pub with trash collectors and tax collectors and street walkers. One time, Jesus is invited to this fancy schmancy dinner party. I mean, all the men are wearing blazers and ties, and the women are wearing dangerous three-inch heels, 
and the place settings are covered up with 10 different pieces of sterling flatware, and there are two-foot-high candlesticks on the table and a floral arrangement that looks like it cost about $400. And then right into the middle of this fancy shindig, this sketchy woman wanders in and goes straight over to Jesus and pours a liter of expensive perfume on his feet. And then she proceeds to wipe up the whole mess with her tears and with her long, lavish, luxurious locks. And everybody at this fancy shindig is scandalized by this unseemly drama, except Jesus himself, who turns to the host of this party and says, Simon, when I arrived at your house, you didn't even show me any common courtesies, but this woman has shown me great love. He not only forgives her, he lifts her up as a role model. And he's doing that on every page of the Gospels, lifting up these sketchy people, these losers, and putting his imprimatur on them. Jesus showed a loud and lavish love for the awkward, the scared, the shy, and the socially inept. And here's the thing, friends. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the one we follow. On our own, we don't want to waste our time on these people. There's nothing in it for us. It's inefficient. Life is too short for people like this. But he opens our eyes to their silent beauty and their faithful hearts, full not of a lot of words, but big with love. A long time ago, there was a show on MTV called True Life, I Have Autism. And one of the young men featured on that show was named Jeremy. Now, Jeremy doesn't talk. At the time the story was told, he was in high school. He doesn't talk, but he give him, they give him this device called a light writer. A light writer is a little device that converts text into speech. He, Jeremy taps the keys and it speaks for him. And to be honest, it's a little spooky, this voice, a little mechanical. Sounds a lot like the voice that Stephen Hawking used when he was with us. It's spooky and it's mechanical, but at least Jeremy can talk. And every year, Jeremy throws a birthday party for himself. And every year, all his high school classmates show up at Jeremy's house. So moving to see these kids show a loud and lavish love to the awkward. And now, to be honest, Jeremy doesn't really participate in the festivities much. He doesn't like loud noises, sudden movements, or bright lights. And so he goes up to his bedroom and to get some peace and quiet. He doesn't participate. But towards the end of the party, he takes his light writer, and with its spooky mechanical voice, it says, I have to say, friends, that this is, hands down, the best party I've ever been to. These high school kids showing their loud and lavish love to a socially inept teenager, opening their hearts to his silent beauty. Meg and Mike Revord are very involved with this organization called Gift of Adoption. Gift of Adoption raises money to enable families to adopt orphaned kids. At one time, Meg was president of this organization. I don't know if she is right now. You can ask her yourself. So Mike and Meg, a couple of years ago, invited Kathy and me to a benefit in Chicago for Gift of Adoption. And Ernie and Cheryl 
Johnson spoke. You know Ernie. He hosts Inside the NBA with Kenny Smith and Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal. Ernie and Cheryl have six children. Four of them are adopted. One's from Romania and another is from Paraguay. Ernie jokes that he has a miniature little United Nations right in his house. In 1990, Ernie and Cheryl were home watching TV, the ABC program 2020, when they learned that there were at that time 14,000 orphans in Romania who are wards of the state and looking for a home. And Cheryl turns to Ernie and she says, we have to go over there and get one of those kids out of an orphanage. And in 1992, she goes, Cheryl goes, intending to adopt a baby girl without disabilities. And then she meets Michael. Michael is not yet three. He has never spoken a word. He has never taken a step. He's never been outside. He has a club foot. The nurse says to Cheryl, don't take this one. He's no good. But it was too late. She was already in love. So she phones Ernie back home, and Ernie says, bring him home. Even with the club foot. And when he's about 20, Michael is diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, a case so severe that he can't breathe on his own. A ventilator keeps him alive 24-7. They have to suction his lungs and have to help him in and out of the shower every day. Now, Michael died two years ago at the age of 33, but not before his mom and dad gave him a wonderful life. Short, but wonderful. And Ernie says, look, everybody has value. Everybody has value. We don't all need to have the same capabilities. Michael is fearfully and wonderfully made. Our expectations get so high. But you give Michael a car magazine or laminate a photo for him, he thinks he's hit the lottery. Michael has it figured out. He's whole. Oh, loud and lavish lover of the awkward and the shy and the scared and the socially inept. Open our eyes to their silent beauties.